0: That is, by far, the most talked-about attribute of in the Word of God. Of God is His holiness, followed by justice and followed by love. Acts chapter 13. Again, I'm not certain if I'm going to get through all this today. It, it certainly is possible, but if I had to guess, I'm going to guess it's going to be a two-part Message, But we'll see here how much I get through. Acts chapter 13. I'll set the context back for us after I read and pray. But we're going to pick it up in verse 14. We left off where John Mark has just departed from Paul and Barnabas. The journey has just begun, not, not long into it. After Cyprus, they land and then John Mark departs and now they're in Perga verse 14 but when they departed from Perga they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the sabbath day and sat down and after the reading of the law and of the prophets the ruler uh, uh, excuse me after reading of the law and the prophets uh, 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 and after the reading of the law and the prophets the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them saying ye men and brethren if ye have any word of exhortation for the people say on then Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought them out of it. And about the space of forty years suffered their manners in the wilderness. and When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years, that's the culmination of everything he's discussing, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king to whom... Also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, of which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. Now here would be the thing that would grab all their attention very quickly. Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel... And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwelt at Jerusalem and the rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. When he had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them, uh, which came up from with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are, uh, who are his witnesses unto this people. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that, he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, for he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou, uh, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, help me to stay true to it. Lord, help me not to veer from it. Lord, I pray that you give us understanding. I pray your spirit would have free course. Lord, direct what I say and how I say it. Lord, help us to see the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do work and meet the needs that are here. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that this would, would draw us closer to you and strengthen us in our walk. And Lord, if there's anyone here who needs that conversion, I pray even today they'd repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, may you be glorified and honored. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we, we are dealing, we're into the very first missionary journey. So when we back up a little bit, we put this back in context. We had the very first Gentile that finally, somebody from Israel, and by Gentile what I mean is somebody that's not of the nation of Israel. That's what the Bible means. There's, in the Bible had divided between uh, Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and the rest of the world. And up, in, up until this point, uh, up until, you know, this, this last tw- 20 years or so, those that had converted had been following Christ. They're still just preaching unto Israel. They don't understand that this, even when Christ had told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They didn't quite understand that. I mean, it was, it was different than their upbringing. There was strong separation. You weren't to, you weren't to uh, have a meal with the Gentile. You weren't to fellowship with them. That just wasn't to happen, and nobody was going to them. And finally, as we saw there when we got into uh, Acts chapter 10, we saw all that God did, actually, to, to get Peter... Through that vision he gave him to go to a Gentile and preach the gospel to him. And Peter obeys. He goes He goes into the house of the Gentile. They fellowship. He preaches the gospel. Him and his house and people he brought into his house, they are converted. Peter is stunned. It's true. This really does go to the entire world. It clicked in Peter's mind what it all meant. And then shortly after that, they head back to Jerusalem and Peter tells them, Listen, it's true. This is for the rest of the world. It's not just for us. Word travels. You get to the third largest city in the world that day, Antioch of Syria. You have Rome, you have Alexander in Egypt, and then Antioch of Syria. Well, some of the Jewish converts there hear about this. They begin immediately to preach to the Gentiles. You have your very first Gentile church being established. They hear about it in Jerusalem. So who do they send? They send Barnabas. Go check it out. Barnabas heads to the church there in Antioch of Syria, and it's taking place. He begins to work there. Uh, And the Bible tells us great multitudes began to convert. It gets so big, Barnabas knows he needs help. He remembers the key man that had come to know the Lord, a man named Saul. Saul, ten years prior to this, what's taking place in Acts chapter 12, ten years prior to what's taking place here, Paul is uh, Saul at the time is converted. He was the guy leading the persecution to destroy the Christian movement. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the one giving the authority uh, uh, to kill those, to put in prison those who were involved with this Christian movement. And yet he gets converted. Well, Barnabas seen what's happening at the church there uh, um, in Antioch. He says, I, "I need help," and he goes and he gets Saul. Saul comes. And the Bible talks about how that next full year, they have the teaching and preaching of Paul and Barnabas. Could you just imagine having those men teaching you? By this time, ten years into Saul's conversion, I mean, he had, he had the time in Arabia with Christ and the understanding that was given to him. There's nobody now more qualified that can take the Old Testament scriptures and demonstrate all that, all that Old Testament predicting what would happen with Jesus Christ. He's going to be doing the same today at the church of Antioch of Pisidia. And so they're there, the church begins to grow. They have several men that rise into leadership. The Bible names five for us. We saw that as we started this chapter. And among those five, God determines he's going to start sending out men from there. This is now the key church. It's no longer the church at Jerusalem. Persecution, that caused it to spread. Uh, um, The the key church now for the New Testament is the church of Antioch in Syria. And God says, listen, I'm, I'm going to take out two men. And you could just imagine that church found out. who. And by the way, what we see in the church at Antioch, which might have taken place before, but it was very difficult for the church at Jerusalem and in other places. But for the first time, we see a church, even though large, somehow is managing to assemble together in one place. And the Lord said, Barnabas and Saul, I'm sending out. The church agreed they knew. By the, the Lord always calls those who are busy, active, doing something. And so he gets Barnabas and Saul. The church sends them out. They lay hands on them. They pray for them. They send them out. And right away, we saw last week how they met opposition immediately. There always is opposition. They, they end up in the capital of Cyprus. And while they're there, the governor of Cyprus hears about them and asks to have an audience. He wants to hear what they have to say. Well, while they're one of his advisors is this demonic man. He hears Paul preaching to him, and he hinders it immediately. He does whatever he can through his deception, whatever his words, to try and convince the governor, you don't want this. Listen, this guy's not, you you don't want this. And Paul looks at him, and the Lord strikes that man blind for a season. And the Bible says the governor was astonished, not at the miracle he just saw, at this man, his advisor being made blind in an instant, having to be led out. But he says he was astonished at the doctrine. When you really do hear the gospel and you gain that understanding, it's astonishing what God did in order to save us. And that governor put his faith in Christ. And then we left off. When they left Cyprus, they head to the main uh, southern part, there would be southern Turkey today, uh, of of Asia Minor. They land there, and John Mark departs. That was opposition from within. I dealt with that. We don't know why he departed, whether the romance of this missionary trip Uh, um, uh, was over with, whether it was... Now we see, by the way, last week we talked about this. It was last week on this missionary journey that Paul now comes to, for the first time, to the forefront in leadership. He's no longer called Saul. He's called Paul. And now it refers to him. He is now in leadership. And the rest of the book of Acts will deal with his ministry. So we had John Mark departing. And today... We're going to see with the Apostle Paul how he delivers the gospel to the Jews first. It's incredible. What wisdom he uses. We're going to see how he gives them a reason to listen and he follows up with giving them a reason to believe it. This is the same thing we need to do. We want to give people a reason to listen and base it in truth. Give them a reason to believe what we're saying. It's not just running through six verses as fast as you can to manipulate somebody to pray a prayer nor is it presenting a false christ <clears throat> we also see here there's a few words right in the very beginning that we don't want to miss there's a whole lot there that I want you to understand here and this is still by way of introduction that's why I'm thinking I'm not sure how long to be in the introduction so it might take two parts the very the the very first couple of verses here That we read in verse 14. There's a whole lot there. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. We need to discuss that right there. That says a lot. I believe there's references to those few words in other parts of the New Testament. We need to see what takes place right here because it really is incredible. Incredible. And so they, they left Cyprus, they get to Perga, they're in, they leave Perga in our text, and they ha- head to Antioch of Pisidia. Now, by the time we're done here with Paul, there's going to be 40 different cities named that Paul touches. Forty. It's incredible. It's all starting there from Antioch and Syria. Remember, we have two Antiochs we're dealing with. The Ant- Antioch and Syria, which is this main church. Right now, we're going to see today he's going to be in Antioch of Pisidia. Remember, I discussed this when I brought up the first Antioch. There's 16 Antiochs, basically, in Asia Minor at this time. All right? He's going to be in Antioch of Pisidia, where we're at. It's not too long into this. We're going to get, what, five, six years into this. The Apostle Paul is going to be able to write these words. So that from Jerusalem round about unto um, uh, um, Laconium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I mean... I mean, he covered the area. That was in Romans chapter 15, he says that. But let's see what it took for him to get to from Perga to Antioch of Pisidia. Perga was just seven miles in from the coast. When the boat landed, they would head into Perga. It would be about a seven-mile journey, not much to it. They would get there fairly quickly. Now, let's understand here what we're dealing with, so you can put it together with other parts of the New Testament. So, he gets to the city of Perga. This is in a region called Pamphylia, or a district. Okay? He's going to head into another region or district called Pisidia. Now, these are are regions or districts in a province called Galatia. All right? So the churches he is establishing on this first missionary journey are in the state or province of Galatia. Your New Testament book, the book of Galatians, is written to the churches in Galatia. It's these churches, soon after Paul is gone, that false teachers come in, and they deceive them concerning the gospel. They act, Paul actually uses the phrase rapidly. Think about this. With, within a, a decade, they left the gospel. Did they stop believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No. They strongly believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ still. What happened was, people came in and added to it. They said, well, that's not enough to save you. You also have to, and they threw works into it, the law. And Paul said, no. Have you started off in faith? They are now made perfect by your flesh. You're saved by faith through grace. And so this is the area. So he starts off when he gets there. He's in Pamphylia. He's going to travel to the region of Pisidia and to an Antioch that sits there. Now, this journey would be incredibly difficult. Antioch of Pisidia was 3,600 feet high on a plateau in the Tarsus Mountains. It was 100 miles from Perga, 100 miles basically traveling up through mountains. This city was, 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 certainly wasn't the capital of, of Asia Minor, but it was, for the southern region of Galatia, it was the administrative center at this time. It is thought that when Paul left, because you don't have a record of him preaching in Perga, and it's interesting to know why. It is thought that when he left Perga, when he arrived there, that he was actually really sick. Look in Galatians chapter 4. Again, so this is the epistle written to this regent when he was on his first missionary journey. And look what he says in verse 13. You know how through an infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. So, Paul certainly had a sickness. Most say that Paul was probably suffering with malaria. Um, That that had got a hold of him and that he was very sick by the time he even got to Perga. And that this was leading to why he went, one of the reasons the Lord used to direct him to Antioch of Pisidia. Because being in New Guinea, we know from malaria, when you're in New Guinea, the coastal areas are where malaria is the strongest. We are on an island coastal, I had it 15 times. But when you're in the highlands of New Guinea, malaria is not a problem. Because the mosquito that carries the protozoa of malaria, it won't survive in the higher altitudes. It stays coastal in the warmer areas. And so we know Paul was sick from Galatians chapter 4 when he was there. And so it's it's thought that's one of the reasons he went up into the mountains is because he was suffering from malaria. We see, though, the journey he took, the incredible determination of this man. He never chose the easy road, and I'm going to deal with that more in just a few minutes. To get to Antioch of Pisidia through the route they took he would have to cross two major rivers that were very difficult to cross remember paul where's paul from didn't remember where, where was he raised tarsus paul knows this region he knows, everybody knew this region for that matter how difficult this was known to, to travel through and so Paul heads out, he has to cross these two rivers. Again, the region was well known. It was incredibly dangerous and difficult to travel the route that they took. Here's something from Alexander the Great talked about traveling this route in these mountains. He talked about how he had to meet one of his military counterparts there up in that same area. And he said in order to do so, he talked about how he had to cross the Tarsus Mountains... And he said, the toughest part of all my campaign was to get through those mountains. He said, he talked of the brutal, lawless tribesmen who lived there besides the difficulties in the journey itself. And it was known for all the robbers and what would take place when you're traveling through that area. You had these men that survived on crime on those traveling through and knew exactly what they were doing. So when we have the statement that Paul left Perga to go to Antioch and Pisidia, there's a whole lot there. Many believe it is this portion in Paul's travel that Paul was referring to in the book of 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 26 and 27. He says, In journeyings often... In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings, often in hunger and in thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. As he goes on here, many believe that uh, uh, much of the perils that he talks about here will be referring to when he had to travel from Perga to get to Antioch, of Pisidia. The difficulties of that journey alone. Now, think about this. There really is a very important principle here for us to remember as Christians, as we follow the Lord. With Paul, of course, I love, he didn't simply look for the easy way. This is not how Paul determined the will of God, which we tend to do. If it's easy and it's right in my lap, that's God's will. That's simply not true. Paul didn't look for what was the easiest way to do. John Mark took the easier way. But so often, we just simply want God to put it in our lap, and then we take that as God's will. When the reality is, the majority of the time, God chooses a difficult road. Well, this can't be the will of God, because that would take effort, and that would take work, and that would be difficult. No, that just might be exactly why it's the will of God. We fail to see that at times God will make things difficult, strengthening our trust in Him. Yet so often we just wait for the easy road. Oh, that's of God. Again, I remember when we, when we did arrive in P&G. You, you've heard this story before. I did the two survey trips prior to it, making sure it would go well. I certainly was nervous uh, about the move. I mean, just, just heading right into that island, right into the jungle. Northern Michigan missionary right there. You better believe I was sick to my stomach a whole lot. I did as much preparation as I could. I found a place that was, again, a cement thing, about a thousand square foot that I had left money for to just put dividers in for bedrooms um, that, that we would be renting to live in. There was 12 hours of power, seven days a week. I was good with that. Um, I thought I had a basic understanding to start off with when we arrived there. So the day comes, we arrive, little plane lands there. That, that was sickening. getting, I don't do you remember getting on that little plane heading in there? Yeah. Remember all our bags sitting on the tarmac when we left? We have all of our bags, we're moving there. We get on the plane, there's not, it's a small, small plane. They don't quite have all the FAA regulations. There's not enough seats for my family, but they didn't care. Just put them on your lap, put them on your lap, put them on your lap. We'll get there. The windshield's all completely cracked. I'm like, this is, this is great. We're on an island called New Britain waiting to get to the island of New Ireland. And so he starts attacking. And, and I said, wait, wait. We we're sitting just a few feet from the pilot. And I said, wait, my bags are right there. He says, we'll come back and get them. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm already in the plane. We take off. And he, by the way, he would come back and get them that same day. Didn't charge me anything more for it either. Went back, made a second trip just for those bags. And so I'm there, me, my wife, my four kids. Daniel is the oldest. He's 11, 12 years old at the time. 12 at the time. Down to Bethany, who's six years old. And then we land there, a little dirt run. The flight's only 17 minutes up. You fly over the island and you land. And uh, again, I just want to throw up. Don't know anybody. Incredibly hard to communicate the place that it's a small area where in the government outpost in the we get down to the place that I'd rented. It's there and it's about 8.30 in the morning and it's super, super hot. The islands, equatorial. We stay 95 to 105, 365 days a year. And we get there and I'm just standing underneath the ceiling fan. I mean, I can't believe how hot it is at 8.30 in the morning. And I just arrived. I'm not, I'm not three minutes yet at the place. We're about 20 minutes on the ground. And I'm standing at the ceiling fan just letting it cool me off a little bit. And that's when the power went out. Like, ah, oh, power went out. Didn't think much of it. It was not funny. Did he just laugh at it? Did you hear that? <laughs> power went out. Again, this is like October 31st, November 1st of 2003. Power would not come back on till February. They ran out of money for fuel. I guess that was pretty common. So, power goes out. Then again, I found out just a few minutes later that there is no water. I knew it was a cistern. We had a cistern there. The tank was there. And I went to turn on water. There's no water. And I got with the, the lady, uh, Elma who we were running from. I said, there's no water. She said, oh, the tank has a hole in it. It doesn't hold any water. I'm like, but we need water. And again, I don't even know where a river is yet. I don't even know where a river is yet to go get water. So anyhow, the battles began right away. But you know what, never, what wasn't, to, even though I didn't understand all that was taking place, I didn't. I mean, the battles with the rats, malaria you hit a couple months later, all that stuff, all that went through those first six, eight months, I didn't understand it. But listen, one thing that I knew is God just doesn't choose the easy way. It wasn't because it was difficult that I'm supposed to think, okay, this isn't the will of God. One thing I knew is before I ever surrendered that the Lord had to put me in a place where I knew that I knew that I knew that this was your will because I never wanted that mind game once I got there. I wanted to know, no, I'm right, where God wants me. But so often we just look for what's easiest and we take that as God's will. Many times we completely miss God's will. We don't even act on it because we're waiting for God just to make it easy. But that's not how it works. Ask Joseph. Ask Paul. <clears throat> Paul followed God. He knew the Lord wanted him in Antioch, and he took the journey. Now, once there, he heads to the synagogue, and he will preach. We're going to see, he's going to give reason for them to listen, and a reason for them to believe. He's going to deal with, altogether, we're not, I, I probably want to get to the second point of this message, the third point I'm not even ready for, because I knew I, would, I wouldn't even close to getting to that, but when I read his sermon, his sermon we can put in three parts. It's pretty easy to look at. I can put it in three pieces for you right now. He's going to deal with the past, He's going to deal with prophecy, and then he's going to deal with propitiation of Christ. But when he starts out here, look at verse number 15. Go back to the book of Acts chapter 13. Paul arrives... um, and he heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath day there. Again, by the way, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but Antioch in the city was known to have a very large um, Jewish population as well. So this would probably be a pretty decent-sized synagogue that Paul is heading to to preach right now. Um, so Paul's going to head there. He's gonna, again, this is where he's, he's going to use wisdom with the past. He's going to use the past to give them a reason to listen to him. And then he's going to tie in that past. It really is incredible the wisdom he uses when he preaches here. Think of his audience. Think of who he's talking to and how he's going to go about this. Once he establishes the past and what the past is pointing to, which is the last word he uses before he immediately jumps to prophecy, is Jesus Christ. How the history of Israel was pointing to this man. So he heads to the synagogue, and the events that would take place in the synagogue are still very similar to what we find taking place in synagogues even today. The first thing that would take place would be the, they would recite the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. Uh, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy would That would that'd be read. They would hear it. After that, prayers would be offered. And then at that point, then uh, more scripture is read. They would read from the Pentateuch and from the prophets. First would be the, first would be the Pentateuch. They would do a, a reading in a very systematic way where the entire Pentateuch would be ready, would be completely read through on those, Sabbath, on those Sabbath days in a seven year time frame. Immediately following the reading of the Pentateuch, they would read from the prophets. That too would be covered in a seven year systematic time frame. Paul in that would be instruction, teaching. And if there was a competent visiting guest, he would be invited to do the speaking. As we often see, Paul using this for him to preach. And it just so happened here on this Sabbath day that Paul and Barnabas were there, and Paul certainly was was competent. They may have noticed, I I don't know this to be certain or not, but it is certain something to consider because he was always asked. He might even still have been wearing his rabbi garb. Remember who he was. Now, he might not have too. The Bible never tells us. But it was clear that when this man showed up, he was asked to speak. So, Paul heads to the synagogue. He is asked to speak by the leadership in the synagogue. And Paul stands to preach. Then Paul stood up in verse 16 and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. Like any good preacher, he uses hand gestures. If John Penix was here, I'd mention he probably had a pen in his hand. John can't stand that I keep a pen in my hand when I preach. But we do learn some things here. Just like the Lord's going to tell us in the book of Corinthians, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. He has. So Paul, when Paul stands up, he beckons them to give audience to please to listen. Listen, the fact is the preacher does have the right to expect your attention when he gets up to preach and teach. Not because of who the preacher is at all. There's nothing in me that demands that attention whatsoever. But it's because of what is going to be said, what is going to be dealt with. Because you are dealing with the Word of God. That's what demands the attention. I remember, again, the one service, and again, I'm not certain if I did right or wrong this day. I don't know. Uh, if i knew clearly one way or another i would say it no this is wrong or no this is exactly what i should have did but when you're studying your prayer you put the hours into it and i and i got out to the village of kudukudu and the work had been going a couple of years at this point and i arrived and it was low attendance it's always discouraging when you're when you're pastoring a church and it's low attendance it was low attendance this day i don't remember why and so that was a bit discouraging and so we get through all the singing and specials in the church, and then I get up to preach, and I, and I begin preaching. And I look around, and not one person is listening. Not one. Again, there's not that many there, so it's easy to see, except for my family. My family's on the front row over here, where the, where the sites are sitting, and, and they are listening. And the reason why my girls listed was so they could calculate, or, or not calculate, write down all of my mistakes. They would have a list for me when we got in the car all of my mistakes. And uh, um, because I am such uh, grammar, I am incredible at it. I really have a mastery of the English language. And, uh, and that was in another language, actually, and I never mastered that one either. So I'm horrible in two languages. But that was it. I had one guy in the back pew. He is completely out. His head is back. His mouth is open. His feet are up on the other pew. Um... I have a couple of guys talking over here. I have two ladies with one of my kids' books in between them, and they're looking through the book. And I look around, and I'm not not exaggerating. Not one person apart from my family is listening. And I'm preaching. And you think of all the time you put into this, and you know they need it. And I took my Bible, and this got their attention, and I slammed it. It was much like, boom, everybody looked. Now, I have everybody's attention. And I said, if you don't want it, I don't have to give it. And I got in my car with the family and I left. I can still remember all of a sudden, nobody's even talking when we're leaving. Everyone's just sitting there like, what's happening right now? What's happening? And I do know this. Again, I don't know if that was right or wrong. thing. I do know this. I never had that happen again. Never. Never had it happen again. Might not have been the right move. I, I don't know. Maybe I should have just dealt with it right there. It might have been a better move. But at, in that moment, and, that, and it did work. But as we see here, when the Word of God is being preached, you should listen. Paul asks for their attention, and they give it. And it's going to be amazing what they hear. Now he's going to give his audience a reason to listen to him. He goes into the history of Israel showing his belief, of course, in the Law and the Prophets. That he's a strong believer in both, in God's Word. And what you're going to find interesting about this, and let me cover this too, because I think this, needs, this certainly needs to be true in our day when it comes to the preaching of God's Word. Paul is not a character in his own sermon. He's not. There are two in his message, God, and, and, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Son. And he, what he's doing here, he's using God the Father to introduce to them the Son of God. Verse 17, we see where God chose, God exalted, God brought out. Verse 18, God suffered. Verse 19, uh, um, uh, on and on and on. Uh, Verse 20, God has mentioned where God gave. Verse 21, God gave. Verse 22, God removing, raising. God gave testimony. God raised. Verse 23, verse 30, verse 37. On and on and on. Listen, for those of our men who are called to preach, when you're preparing messages, when you preach, you're not to be the main character. It's about God. It's about his word, you stay true to his word. it's not finding a text for you to read and then just jump off from there. You are to preach this, don't make it about it it doesn't matter how, 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 you know but you know again we've had we, we've had that happen here where we've had we've had whether well, it was a guest preacher whatever come up to preach and he told funny stories that made us all laugh, stories that made us all cry. The problem was, his 50-minute message was all about him. It didn't matter how, doesn't matter how moving that is. Do you understand? Listen, there are settings where that's appropriate. There are settings where he can get into those things, and it's appropriate, but not when it's time for the preaching of the Word of God. You have to stay with the Bible. That's what you do. So Paul uses wisdom. Obviously, he cannot just start with Jesus Christ. They have heard his name. There's no doubt about that. He was known throughout the entire area. His miracles, his power, what he did, what happened. He's not going to start this message off with proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. He's going to use wisdom before this audience. He knows if he did that, a barrier would be put up immediately. He's going to present the gospel in a way which they will listen and in a way which they will understand. We all need wisdom as we talk to others. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic church. Even today, if I am witnessing to a Catholic, I don't start off when I sit down and talk with a Catholic why it's wrong to worship Mary. I, I, I can even start with the things that are common that we have in place our desire to know God, to know truth. And then bringing that into the truth of the gospel. Again, and then Paul dives into a sermon once he has their attention, and he's going to bring up from their past the prophecy and propitiation. He is going to use the past of the nation of Israel leading to how everything points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true. Even in this world right now, you, you, you can see what's going on, in, whether, whether it's, you pick the continent. The different battles that are raging, the spiritual battles taking place, and, and how, how so much of what's going on does in fact point to Christ. Remember, on Wednesday night, we talked about it. We're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians how we see the chaos in our world, the violence that's taking place, the hatred that is now there. I mean, the rising hatred in the past few years is incredible. There's a bitterness and a hatred when people uh, um, disagree now. There's to the point of violence, to the point of, uh, of, of fabricating whatever you need to to try and make your point. And how even Christians today seem to be so perplexed and wondering what's going on and where's God in all this. And yet as we look in Scripture, listen, no, oh God's in control. We can see everything that's taking place perfectly laid out in Scripture with what's taking place right now. All pointing to the day of the Lord when the Lord returns. And that day is coming. Next week, I'll jump more into this message as we get into the past and the prophecy of his message that Paul is preaching. He's going to get into the fact how Christ is the propitiation for their sins. See, what does that mean? He is the one, you see, you have sinned against God just like I have. There's not one, I, I, again, you remember, I, I referred to, I, I, mean, I graduated from high school all the way back in 1988. But here just a couple of weeks ago, I had one of, my, one of my friends, and I went to a public high school. One of my good friends in high school. He was even our class president. And we got, we got along well. He, was still, he was, Well, I won't get into different stories with it. But anyhow, he did this post because he got invited to church. He actually put a picture of the letter up. And it looked pretty nice. I don't, if there's other context to it that I'm not aware of that could be possible, but it wasn't mentioned at all. But he was mad that the person invited him to church. And, and, but I think he misunderstood the person's intent. And he went on a rant saying, how, how dare you think you're better than me? Well, the guy doesn't think he's better than you at all. Just because we attend church doesn't, doesn't make us better than anybody. We want people to attend because of the truth that we all need. And that's what Paul's going to tell them. Paul's going to say, listen, this Christ, you need him. He is the Savior. Well, to save us from what? Because one day you're going to die and stand before Almighty God. You've broken his law just like I have. For all have sinned. You say, but God understands me. Listen, that is such a lie. Where you think you're going to be okay because God's going to look at you and say you're basically a good person. That's not going to take place. Remember what they sang about this morning, God's holiness. It's the most talked about attribute in the Word of God. He is holy, He is just, and He is love. In order for God to save you, all three of those would be satisfied. He does not ignore who He is. He doesn't ignore justice, nor does He ignore holiness, because He's love. He has all of them working perfectly together. And that is demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Because what God did to save you from that judgment, He made it possible for you to look like you are perfect, which is God's requirement. God Himself became a man, walked on this earth 30-some years. He was perfect as a man. Do you understand He's the only person that's ever lived on the earth in perfection? As a man? That's it. So He is the only one in all of human history who could stand at the judgment day and the Father can say, You are innocent. You have fulfilled the law. Now, get this. This is where God's love comes in. That fulfilled holiness. God's love is controlling all of this. He lived the perfect life for you. You see, I don't understand that. Let me give you a verse. Great verse. It talks about what happened on the cross. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. might sound complicated. It's not. It teaches us what happened on the cross. It's saying that Christ had lived that perfect life. He was without sin. The only one to ever be without sin. The only one. But when he went to the cross... God the Father allowed a transaction to take place that would satisfy justice. When he was on the cross, that verse teaches us God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. So my sin, my transgressions were placed upon him as if he was the transgressor. And and yours. And the Father then judged him In our place. That, God said, I'll take that. That will satisfy justice. He suffered. When we say that Christ died for you, we mean that literally. He literally took your place because of your sin. He took your condemnation upon himself. But Jesus is God. So get this. This is is even better. Paul gets to this in his message. in, in, In the last part of his prophecy. About Christ in the Old Testament. Because he was God, held and hold him. He defeated death and rose again. If you die and God judges you and you go to hell, you're not coming out. You are not God. It says that he took our sin, but that's not all. It says he takes our sin at the same time that we get his righteousness upon us. It's like this. I use this illustration a few times in the past. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that when God judges you, books are going to be opened. God's going to have recorded every single time he broken his law. Every single time. And just like when you stand before a judge and charges are read. By the way, you can't stand before an earthly judge and say, well, and you're guilty, all these things you've done. You can't stand before, but judge, you know me. I'm a pretty good guy. Why don't you just let me go? He can't do that. Why? That would go against justice. God is just. It's who he is. He's not going to go against that. So this is what God did to satisfy that so that we could go free. Let's say this is the book that has your name on it. Underneath is every single transgression you've ever done or ever will do. Here it is. Boom, it's there. Now, we have another book. Here's Jesus Christ and all His righteousness. There's no sin here. No transgression. He's perfect. Nothing but righteousness. Here's your name and your sin. Christ's name and His righteousness. And when we say that Christ died for you, what we mean is this. Is you can take your name right here and remove it. and Put it over here. Remove Christ's name and put it over here. Now, underneath Christ's name is all of your sin. That's exactly right. And he was judged in your place. And now on this side right here. Now it's your name. Now underneath your name is perfection. Nothing but the righteousness of Christ. Guess what it looks like? You have never sinned. We call that the doctrine of justification. Well, then how do we switch those names? Two key words throughout all of Scripture, really since the book of Genesis on, repentance and faith. You turning from whatever else it is you've been trusted in, seeing the direction your sin is taking you, and placing your faith, this is key, solely in Jesus Christ. Not on the church, not in baptism, not in good works. It is faith in Christ alone. Matter of fact, these churches in Galatia, that's where they would go off. They would add something to that. The devil's been at that now for 2,000 years, getting churches to add to faith in Christ. If you'll come to him in repentance and faith, you will be converted. You will be saved from that judgment. With heads bowed and eyes closed.